couple of announcements. It says in here that we have, I want to read to you something that I got from one of my students in Nepal. Not everything you, this actually is going to relate to what we're talking about today. Um, not everything you hear in the news is what's actually going on. There's always more to the story. I know you know that. This is from one of my students. Um, remember, the English is a little broken here. All have become homeless in my hometown. Those who died already is dead. But those who are living are dying every day. What are we going to eat? We don't know. There is also fear of spreading diseases. Every night is hunting night. Hunting night. Trying to figure out how to survive. Where shall we go? Nowhere to go. We are living in cold and open field without tent and food. Streets are not comfy or warm, but we have got nothing safer than them. My hometown is sinking. It's the beginning of the, uh, the rainy season, so there's water everywhere. Remember, they're living out. You see the pictures. They're actually living out in the streets. My hometown is sinking. Please take us to shore. Got another one yesterday from a student who said, uh, I am homeless. I am clothless. I am moneyless. I am foodless. I am waterless. But I'm not hopeless. I had a student last night text me, last night for me, and we were uh, texting back and forth for actually quite a while. And uh, he said, I asked him, are you able to get good water? And he said, I can't afford the water. Remember I told you that the water uh, before the earthquake was selling for 40 rupees. That doesn't mean much to you, but what this does, now it's selling for 550 rupees. It's like 12 times. He said, I have no money and I can't afford to buy water. Can you send me water? And I wrote back and I said, I, I have been told that all the money being transferred in is being confiscated by your government. And he wrote back and he said, yes, that is true. And he said, uh, today, as of today, we have gotten nothing from the government except for the people that have power. They're being taken care of. And all my students say the same thing. We haven't seen a rescue worker. I haven't seen aid. Um, so what I want to do is just ask you to stop with me for a moment and let's remember them before they leave. Okay, can we do that as a church? Father, I, uh, I lift up our fellow believers, Lord, in, in such a destroyed and stricken place. Father, I confess to you that I neither understand what it would be like to go through what they're going through I also confess to you, Lord, that I have absolutely no insight into how to help them. I don't know how to get the money. don't know how to get the resources. All I know is life continues to, to be difficult. And I know that now as they enter the second stage of people dying from disease and malnutrition and lack of water, Lord, they need your mercy and they need their help, your help. So, God, we lift up our brothers and sisters and ask that you would please be with them. Amen. Help them. And Father, in keeping with their prayer requests to me, I pray that during this time you would, you would help them, show them how to share their faith with their people around them that don't know you, their Hindu and Buddhist friends. They desire to do that, and they're trying to make sense of how to do that. So I pray that you would give them the words to say, the actions, um, things like that, and watch over them. We ask these things in your son's name because we believe strongly in the gospel. We believe without doubt.
with complete conviction of your love for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So as the Lord reminds you, just pray for the pray for our fellow believers in Nepal who are struggling to uh, survive. Don't feel guilty. That's not it. The Lord knows what he's doing. Okay, we are in a series in Isaiah, the, um, the Lord has spoken. We called it that because in Isaiah, the very first, the second verse actually in Isaiah, it says the Lord has spoken. So we call our series, The Lord Speaks. All the way through the book, the Lord is speaking. He's saying things. And uh, toward the end of the book, the Lord has spoken. So that's why we called it that. We're also asking how we as a church fit into this story because we are somehow connected to this story. Somehow we are part of it. So thus far, we've looked at uh, the idea, we started with this, that the Lord is the Holy One. The Lord is unequivocal. He states very clearly, He is God and there is no other. He is the only God, the only true God, and He is alive. And there is no other God who He will share His glory with. He will share His glory with no one else. So it's a very powerful statement in Isaiah. And the reason why we're looking at themes, uh, some of you have told me, read your, uh, raised your hands and told me that you have read Isaiah, you will recognize it's a very challenging book to read. You just can't pick it up and read it all the way through. If you do that, pretty soon your mind's wandering and thinking about Broncos or lunch or whatever it is you think about when you're daydreaming because you lose track of it. It doesn't flow like we are used to reading things. So what we did was we surfaced out of this the key themes that emerge which impact us today. That's how we did it. So you remember how we divided Isaiah up? The first 39 chapters are written to the people. Uh, they're all written to the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, Judah, because um, the kingdom had been divided. And so the first 39 chapters are written to them while they're undergoing persecution and suffering and they're watching the northern kingdom be dismantled and taken apart. The Assyrians have come down and are destroying the northern kingdom. So that's, the Assyrians are right on their border. They're right there. They don't know what to do. So their king has a choice. Do I turn back to the one true living God and entrust him, place my trust in him? Or do I make a, a treaty with the king, this invading king, Assyria? And so he decides to make a treaty. It's a disaster. Should have never done it. That's the final straw. God says, because you did not trust me, here's what's going to happen. First 39 chapters are God's rebuke. Then starting in chapter 40, 40 through 55, that's where we have many of our, our, our passages that we know and are familiar with. Many of the ones that we quote at Christmas come out of that section. We've now moved 150 years later. They have now been dismantled as a nation. Their nation no longer exists. And they've been taken into captivity. So they're no longer living in their home. And God now gives them these prophecies about goodness, about hope, about restoration, about future glory, because um, they're in a real dark time. I personally believe, and I know I'm a minority, that Isaiah was all written by Isaiah. Um, and so there are those that say because the second section is written, 150, or written to people 150 years later, Isaiah couldn't have written that. I don't agree with that. If, if God had delivered those prophecies 150 years later, how would he have gotten them to the nation? Because now they're scattered. So I think he actually gave them through Isaiah. So they were familiar with these prophecies. So when the time came and they're living in a dark world, they're in captivity, their country no longer exists. Think about that. What makes culture, culture? 
our jobs, our livelihood, our education, our entertainment, the things that we do, the things that we enjoy, our art. You think about all that, and for them, the nation is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. They're not even in their home country. One of the texts I received this week from one of my students, she said, I'm sitting in an open field, it's pouring down rain, I'm cold, and I'm crying because I feel like my country is no more. Because all the things I just described are gone. How do you rebuild after that? How do you do that? That's what's happening with these people. They're now, dis- they're now spread around in other countries. And God says in the middle of that darkness, the last chapter has not been written. That is a good thing to remember. Some of you have children and have wandered from the faith. Some of you have siblings and parents, friends, people who used to be faithful but aren't faithful anymore. The last chapter hasn't been written. Just relax. God is sovereign and loving and knows what he is doing. He does. He understands best how to get to the people that you're concerned about. Keep loving them. The last chapter has not been written, and that's what's happening right here. So we talked about the Lord is the Holy One, chapters 1 through 7. Starting in chapter 2, the Lord desires to bless the nations. Starting, But in chapter 13 through 27, he addresses each of the nations and the evil that they have created and done to each other and the hurts that they have caused. It's interesting. Um, I brought this up in Wednesday night in our class on how to study the Bible in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22. While you're in the New Jerusalem, it says the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. But wait, I thought the healing of the nations occurred at glory. Huh. We have work to do. Even in the New Jerusalem, we still have healing to bring about. Isn't that interesting? We still have work to do. So he, he gives an indictment against all the nations surrounding Egypt and how evil they have become and turned their back on him and rejected him. Then we went to Isaiah 40, the beginning of the new section where you start to see hope and God begins to talk about the remnant. And uh, that's a key theme in this book. All the way through the history of the world, there has been a remnant of people who are faithful, who shine light in darkness, who bring the good news out to a broken people everywhere. That's always been true in how he protects and cares for this remnant, not because they're better, but because they're being faithful. They're going to do what he wants to do. When we talked about the nations, remember we talked about God had surrounded himself by a kaleidoscope of nations, different ethnic groups, and he chose one to reach the rest? Well, this remnant, that's their job. So he always preserves a remnant so that there's someone to tell the truth about this one true living God. He always looks for faithful people. Then we went from there to Isaiah 42 to 43 in the early part of this second section, which is filled with hope. And he talks about the witnesses. The Lord calls his witnesses. You may remember there, he said, uh, he creates this incredible scene, a courtroom scene. And he says, uh, all right, I'm going to sue the gods, the other gods. Bring your witnesses. I'll bring my witnesses, you bring theirs. And we'll listen to each other's testimonies. And uh, we'll find out if your witnesses are true, then we will acknowledge it's true. Better make sure I say the right words here. You bring your witnesses to the, to the stand. 
Nobody shows up. He says, so I'm going to call my witnesses, you deaf and blind people. Those are his witnesses. You see, neither see nor hear, but yet you are my witnesses. That should give us comfort. You know what makes you a credible witness? It's not that you have your life together. It's not that you have your act together, so quit pretending. That's one of the, one of the controversies, one of the, one of the accusations from the young generation to the church today. Did you see the article in the paper? Christians are now less than 50% or whatever. They're declining at an incredible rate. We're losing Christians in the church in America at a rate of 4,500 people a day. That's how fast we are declining. And you know what one of their criticisms is? You're pretending. You're not honest about your brokenness. You're hiding it. If you're not hiding it, I don't want to be a part of it because I can't get there. Quit pretending. I'll be the first one to tell you that I'm broken. Yes, I have sin. You want to know what it is? Come have coffee with me. <laughs> and I'll tell you. I, I don't mind being honest because the Lord's in the business of redeeming that. And so it's not the fact that you have your act together. That's not what makes you a credible witness. It's not the fact that you have the right words or the right training or the right schooling or you know how to say things. That's not what makes you a credible witness. And by the way, that goes contrary to the world. If you're being sued and you're going to pull witnesses to reflect and support you, who are you going to pick? The idiots? No. The best. God chose the idiots. You don't know my backstory, but it's not pretty. He chose the idiots to represent him. What makes you a credible witness is not what you have done or what you say. What makes you a credible witness is what God does through you. That's what makes you a credible witness, is what the grace he shows you when you do stupid things. The way he honors you when you do right things, but the way he stays with you no matter what. Never turns his back on you. One of my kids, at the height of their rebellion, I just walked up to him, put my arms around him and gave him a hug and said, I don't get it either, but I'm not ashamed of you. Not embarrassed by you. When the dust settles, I will still be here. Fifteen years later, he remembers that, and the dust is settling. And I'm still not embarrassed by him. Not ashamed of him, not at all. I did worse things than he did. Wait, I shouldn't put that on the microphone. <laughs> that's, that's what makes you a credible witness is not what you do, but how God is working in you and through you and making changes and how he is standing faithful in each of your lives. That's what makes you a credible witnesses, witness. So he can call you up, you deaf and blind, you idiots. It's a wonderful message. And then we went from there to Isaiah 40, again, in this section of hope, how God restores. He is in the business of restoring you might think of redemption that way. He's restoring. He's making things right slowly. So today we're going to look at Isaiah 52. The Lord brings good news or the gospel. When you hear the word gospel, most of you, your tendency might be to think, well, that's Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Okay, that's true. But the gospel is so big. It's so much bigger than that. It is the wonderful, incredible news of how much the Lord loves you and what he is doing to turn this mess around. The Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is the story of God's grace. You may remember from Isaiah 5, 
when we started this series, when the Lord looked at Israel, he looked for justice. He looked for justice. But what did he find? Bloodshed. Abusing each other. When he looked for righteousness, what he saw instead was cries of distress. Righteousness is doing the right thing. I am hearing lots of cries for distress. I'm being told that right thing is being done. I don't buy it for a second. Guess what? Every government has corruption in it. Somebody's going to get rich out of this. He looked for righteousness, but he saw cries of distress. So then he looked around, and this is what he saw in all the surrounding nations. And you know what? That's the nature of people. We have a problem, don't we? The United Nations isn't going to fix it. Peace Corps is not going to fix it. You can try all you want, and that's not going to fix it. Why? Because of something called sin. Because of the fall, we are in perpetual hostility with God. There's no way I can overstate this. Every aspect of your created being is affected by this. We call that depravity. We call it depravity. Even when you manage in the middle of a dark world to do something good, still depraved. Still depraved. We're estranged from God. We're trapped in darkness. We're defiled and defined by moral impurity. Just look around us. And we're, and we're getting used to it. Church in America is getting used to it. Or if they're not, we're insulating ourselves from it. We're withdrawing from culture. Another mistake. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead in our sin. This is amply demonstrated by Isaiah. Isaiah, all the way up to chapter 40, is an indictment of all the evil that they were doing and the hurt that they were causing to one another, which, by the way, we still do. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's in this context, in Isaiah 52, we're in this middle section now where God begins to bring hope, that God talks about good news. Isaiah prophesies good news or gospel. Something wonderful has happened. Happened. I'm going to read Isaiah 52, the first 10 verses. If you want to follow along, that's where I'll be. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Jerusalem is their beacon of light. It's their identity. Remember, they're not in their country anymore. They're not there. And so when he talks about Jerusalem, there's a longing to go home. Okay? The uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter you again. This is hope for the future of a destroyed city. It's been destroyed. The walls are broken down. Temple's destroyed. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit in throne, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. Daughter Zion, now a captive. I know you're a captive now, he says, but sit up. Live faithfully. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money, you will be redeemed. So what is redemption? Redemption is a very simple concept. When someone gets themselves in trouble to the depth, to the level that they can't get themselves out of it, someone else comes along and gets them out of that trouble, that's redemption. Nepal needs redemption, doesn't it? They neither have the capacity, the resources, the infrastructure, I would even argue the integrity, or the right religious system to get themselves out of this bind. They need redemption. They need people to come along that can really help them. 
bigger nations. I don't know how to do that. You were sold for nothing, but without money, you will be redeemed. This is a glimpse, a glimpse of what he's about to say. Something good is coming. You will be redeemed without money. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. That's when they were taken captive. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them now, they mock. Where's your God? Obviously, your God is impotent and powerless. They never doubted he existed. Your God is powerless. How do we know that? Because our God won. Our dad's bigger than your dad. Our God won. They're mocking. Where's your God? Can you imagine believing in God, the one true God, being transferred to another country, having no home or no country, and they're laughing at you? That's what's happening. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people, they will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. There was very little room in their thinking that God would intervene intentionally to get their attention in a particularly harmful way. I don't know the answer to the question completely on why does God allow bad things to happen, but here's one reason to get your attention. Sometimes he's trying to get the attention of somebody, and here he's doing it. It is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. And when God speaks, it happens. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. That's a key a verse. How beautiful on the mountains are those are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen will lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. They will burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in a bind and can't get themselves out, and God has redeemed it. He's coming to rescue. That's why the shout, the watchman is shouting, salvation. He saved us. He rescued us. The Lord will bear, lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So the basic storyline is this person who's shouting, it is peace, it is good, we're saved. Think of the imagery. You're, uh, <clears throat> you're your army goes out to do battle on your behalf, so all your men leave, and you're in a walled city, so you, you close all the gates and lock everything so they can't take it. What happens if your army loses? Who's coming back? Your sons? Your fathers? Hmm. The enemy. So can you imagine the tension? Standing on the walls, waiting for news. They knew each other so well. There are stories in, in Israel's history that when they saw somebody coming, somebody's running toward us, it looks like so-and-so. That must be good news. Can you feel it? It feels hopeless. We live in another country. Our country is no more. These are the people standing on the walls just waiting. Just waiting. And what does he say? It is peace. If you just picture the runner coming to the, to the walled city, shouting at the top of the line, it, it is peace. It is good. We're saved. 
We have good news. No wonder how it's good news. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. So God reigns. Verse 7. He brings shalom, peace. It's the end of violence and corruption. His reign is good. God will restore his creation. He brings salvation. The ending of all that holds people in slavery. Whatever is enslaving you, you all have something. It'll be the end of that. And then in verse 8, he returns. I just described the imagery of his sentries on the wall. Now we'll move the scene just a little bit. You're now in Jerusalem. They left a remnant there, and uh, the walls are broken down. And do we have any hope for our city? It's broken down. And then all of a sudden you see the runner coming. Guess what? The Lord's returning. It's good news. The Lord is coming back. He's on his way home. And then in verse 9, he's going to redeem. He brings comfort to his people. He brings comfort to his people. He will act and accomplish redemption for all the nations. That's how he concludes it. All of the ends of the earth will see the salvation or the rescue of our God. The last chapter has not been written. That's what he's saying here. Wherever you find yourself in life, one of my best friends just died. I get to do a memorial service Saturday morning for you high schoolers that are graduating. My plan was to be a graduation, but I won't be there. I'm going to bury a friend. I'll be at your parties in the afternoon. Last chapter is not written. I long to hear what she's saying right now. We were supposed to go have breakfast with her and see her on Saturday morning, and she died on Friday. Go figure. Why couldn't she wait two days? So I called her daughter, her adult daughter, and said, well, you know, Nancy and I were coming down. Can we still come and hang with you? So we did. Went down and hung with him, with her. Had a great time. Talking, crying. The last chapter is not written. As we move into the first century, you know what happens? We find a different gospel but the same problem. Listen to this quote. This is written, this is an inscription found in Asia Minor. We found several of them throughout, um, throughout the uh, province of the Roman Empire. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence, the providence, talk about an impersonal God, since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, talk about Augustus Caesar, the emperor, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of humanity, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior. There's a word. We have our hope in the emperor. Where's your hope? Is it in our military or is it in the Lord? Is it in the president or is it in the Lord? He who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar Augustus, who by his appearance exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good news. That's where we get the word gospel from. Good news. Not only outdoing benefactors of the past, he's better than anybody that's ever come, but listen to this, but allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. That's how they describe Caesar Augustus. Every nation has a gospel. We have ours. Happens every January at the presidential speech. I don't care which president is in office, to be honest with you. They all say the same thing. When's the last time you walked up and you had heard him walk up to the podium and say, you know, it really sucks in America. Life's falling apart. I have no idea what to do about it. 
I would just love that if somebody was that honest. No, they, we got it under control. You can relax. We have good news. It's okay. It's under control. We, we do it all the time. The good news of Rome meant peace and security for the privileged few because the majority of the people were enslaved and, un- and oppressed. How did Rome get its glory? By oppressing weaker nations. That's how they got their glory. In this context, this gospel of Isaiah, full going forward now several hundred years, is still true. It reveals how fake the gospel was of the first century Roman Empire, and I would argue it reveals how fake it is today. I'm not surprised that they're taking money. Every government has corruption. Pretty honest. Somebody's going to get rich off of this in the fall. Sads me. It makes me angry. All of a sudden, I can understand why God would get angry at whole people groups. You've gone, you've gone too far. You've oppressed the poor. You've afflicted people. You've taken advantage of them. You've stolen from them. You've crossed the line. I get that. So what is the gospel? Well, I'm going to give you just a couple of passages, and we'll finish here. In Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus standing up in the, in the tabernacle in his hometown, and he quotes from Isaiah 61. He went to Nazareth, Luke 4, 16, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. They gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled it to the place, and he's looking for a place. Now picture a scroll. There's no chapters. There's no verses. He just unrolls a scroll, and there it is right there. And he reads Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's when the Lord forgave all the debt. Freedom. Now, if you're a blind person, this is great news. If you're poor, this is great news. If you're blind or oppressed, this is great news. The problem is you don't recognize that's who you are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is talking about us. This is the good news. And he uses Isaiah 61. The good news, the gospel, it has come. God finally fulfilled his promise. Or Matthew 11, he quotes Isaiah again. In Matthew 11, he quotes Isaiah 35. In this setting, John the Baptist is coming to him, and he asks him the question in verse 3, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? He's trying to figure out if Jesus is the Messiah. How does Jesus answer Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The gospel is lived out. That's how people can tell it's the true gospel. Go back and tell him what you see. He didn't say yes. Oh, of course I'm the one. Don't you know Isaiah? No, he says go back and look at what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is everyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a quote from Isaiah 35. In short, the reign of God has come through the person of Jesus. And you know what? It's now found in us. If we make peace, we do good, we proclaim God's salvation. Just like the messenger who comes running with the good news. The gospel is lived out. So what is the gospel? It's a story of redemption. It's a story of us who have gotten ourselves in a bind so far we can't get ourselves out of it. And God has come to rescue us through his son Jesus. That's what it is. 
It's the story of the one true God who loves us and sends his son Jesus so that we might know him. That's what it is. It's a big story. When it's popular in our culture today, when we share the gospel, well, I'll say 10 or 20 years ago, to start with, you are a sinner, a sinner right? You remember the four spiritual laws? I'm thankful that that's slowly disappearing off the scene. Because that's not how the evangelist did it in Acts. Where did they start? Let me tell you about the God who created all this. I had a friend when we first got here this morning. I said, man, look at that. I said, that's beautiful. He goes, yeah, it is. I just wish it was happening in September rather than May. <laughs> they start with, let me tell you about the God who made all this, who loves you. Is that a better message than to start with you're a sinner? What's well, true? You're a sinner. There's no doubt about it. When you read the evangelistic sermons and acts, half the time you never even get to sin. But people turn to the Lord in faith because they want to follow somebody who cares about them and loves them. That's what the gospel story is. The God who made all of this, Colossians 1, numerous places in Acts, he loves you. And he's pursuing you to the ends of the earth to get your attention. Don't reject him. Don't reject him. This is the gospel of God. If we understand that and we, can, and we believe it, how on earth can we conceal it? It has to be announced. We have to run and shout. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for all along, through all the dark times in scripture, Lord, we, uh, we see a light shining. Hope is coming. The last chapter hasn't been written. We are grateful, Lord, that we can have confidence in you and we can relax and trust you. You love us that much. Thank you for caring not just about me, but for caring about all of creation, about my animals, my friends, all of us. Thank you for caring about all of us. Thank you for sending your son to redeem us. In his name we pray, amen.